America's founding fathers believed their vision, the city upon a hill, could only succeed with a special people in a special place. Over 240 years later, we the people, our American story is still unfolding. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every Friday as I spotlight those who embody the American values of faith, courage, and heroism. You will be uplifted, inspired, proud, and humbled to call yourself an American. American history is more than history. It's personal. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the greatness and goodness of America. America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Alexei de Tocqueville Episode 7 Louisa's American Story The son of an agricultural engineer and a school teacher, Luis Camara Manuel, was born in the 5,000-year-old city of Evora, Portugal. He is the third of four brothers raised on the mountains and beaches of the Oceanside region of Setúbal. Luis left his home at age 18 to serve a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in northern Portugal and immigrated to the United States at age 22 where he would marry the former Angela Fawson. He received a bachelor's degree in political science from Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah and a Master of Business Administration from the University of Phoenix in Seattle, Washington. For nearly two decades, Luis led organizations within Fortune 10 companies in a wide variety of software and information systems organizations. He is the author of multiple articles in IT industry publications. Currently, Luis serves as a senior leader in the Welfare and Self-Reliance Services Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He is responsible for the research and development group of this global philanthropic organization. Throughout his career, Luis has traveled extensively through five continents to develop and test programs to overcome problems associated with poverty. A veteran volunteer of the Boy Scouts of America, Luis has served for over 20 years in many local, state, and national roles. He is a recipient of the Silver Beaver Award. Luis and Angela are the parents of four children. On today's podcast, I have Luis Camara Manuel. I have known Luis and his family for many years. They attend the same church that I do, and they are outstanding people. Tina, thank you for the invitation. I want to begin with your story. Where does your story begin? Because it does not begin here in America. I was, uh, I was born and raised in uh, southern Portugal, and I was born in a, a Roman city, a 5,000-year-old city. A beautiful setting. I was very blessed to be born there, and uh, I was raised in a in a beach community uh, to a Catholic family. I I grew up Catholic. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I, I'm the son of a of a school teacher. I was lucky enough to be her uh, student, first and fourth grade, and that was both a blessing and a curse, if I may say, because um, my mother wanted to make an example out of me, and and, <laughs> and for good or worse. Uh, it was an interesting experience. So first and fourth grade, I was my mom's student. And uh, at age 18, I, uh, I parted ways with my family's religious tradition. I joined the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's a story in and of itself, maybe for another time. But at age 19, I, served, I went and served a, a full-time mission for the church. And I was called to the only mission in the world I had told uh, God I did not want to go to. 
uh, quite literally the words coming out of my mouth, I do not want to go to Porto Portugal and uh, lo and behold, of all 200 somewhat missions that existed at the time, that's the one that he called me to. And today I see the, the eternal wisdom in, in that calling. And, I guess and he knows what's best, right? Very much so. And I met my wife there. It was a transformational experience that that missionary service, that opportunity I had to serve was really transformational to me and, and left a, an imprint in pretty much every facet of my life. Uh, 30 years later, I still very much hearken to those experiences and to the learnings I had at that time. Like I said, I grew up Catholic. I grew up in scouting and my childhood hero was Robert Baden-Powell. He's the founder of scouting, the founder of the movement. And one of the things that impressed me the most about him was that he considered himself, he used often the, the term citizen of the world. And I really loved that concept. It was his goal, his aspiration to leave the world a better place than he had found it. Uh, he leaves that very clearly articulated in his last message to scouting. And he made this one of his core principles to the worldwide scouting movement. I aspire deeply to honor that premise. I really wanted to be like him, a citizen of the world. I aspire to leave a footprint in the world. And, and that sounds a bit megalominous of sorts. I left scouting feeling, or I lived scouting feeling like it was my duty to make the world a better place. The world, the construct of world being bigger than just my small Catholic community or, or my family or my, even my country of 10 million, I, I felt that that was something important to me that I needed to aspire for. And so later in life, and you know, after joining the LDS church uh, and serving a full-time mission, immigrating to the United States at age 23, after, shortly after my mission, marrying my wife, attending BYU, getting my undergraduate uh, international, international relations, interestingly enough, I was finally uh, in a spot where I felt like the Lord had placed me snugly in that place. We moved to the Pacific Northwest after getting my undergraduate, and uh, I went to work for Microsoft, feeling that uh, this was God's place for me. It was my platform to drive to a global impact, uh, that the creations of my labor somehow directly or indirectly would have an influence in a new technological experience you know, whether it's a small company or, or a, a family business that somehow I would leave a legacy, I would try to leave the world a better place because of the work I was doing. And so I lived uh, that dream for 10 years and working for Microsoft was an ex just phenomenal experience in every aspect, in terms of growth, in terms of exposure to some of the most brilliant people in the world. Talk about brilliant people. You know, I don't hold a candle to those folks. Um, <laughs> But it was really, really fascinating to me. And I felt that that was my platform to honor Baden-Powell's uh, aspiration for the children of the world. And it was uh, about 10 years into my career at Microsoft that I got a phone call from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, in this case, from a, uh, someone in the Welfare and Self-Reliance Department calling my attention to global operations for a, a fund, the, the Perpetual Education Fund. I was recruited to that. And, I, and I, I felt I really didn't want to leave Microsoft for a number of reasons. The, the, certainly the money was very good. Uh, but I felt that there was something different. It was time to shift my life, to shift my focus uh, away from technology into philanthropy. And so I feel that Baden-Powell's challenge to me didn't quite come to fruition until I was asked to, take, to make that shift uh, and to come into a place of philanthropy to an organization devoted to helping change people's lives conditions. And now I feel like I, I feel truly fulfilled. I feel that this is, uh, this is what I was 
asked to do by the founder scouting uh, almost 40 years ago. I lead a team of, at a lack of a better word, they are uh, research scientists. We, we're a group of social scientists and we build programs, uh, we design programs and we prototype programs designed to help uh, alleviate the, the root causes of poverty. And it's a wide variety. When you talk about poverty in the global context, there's a number of reasons why poverty exists. It's not just multi-generational poverty. It's not just lack of education. It's not just environmental and ecosystemic causes. Uh, it can be caused by malnutrition. It can be caused by hunger. It can be caused by uh, political strife. It can be caused by a number, just, just countless. And so we try to understand the root causes of poverty and, and to build programs that are designed to address those root causes of poverty. For example, right now, one of the programs we're working on is designed to help overcome child malnourishment. Child malnourishment is different from child hunger in as much as child malnourishment is a silent killer. Whereas child hunger, a child is hungry, a child complains and cries. With malnourishment, a child dies with a full stomach. And so it's not just about providing nutrition-rich food for these children. It's about educating parents about sound nutritious practices. Uh, it's about changing dietary cultures. It's about the problems that come from uh, drinking bad water. Worms, as much as you feed a child, you can give a child a 2,000 calorie diet, uh, but if they have a tummy full of worms, mm -hmm. they're still not going to retain those nutrients and, and they end up dying from perfectly preventable causes. And so you have to think broadly in terms of how do you abate these problems? How do you mitigate these problems? It's not just about giving nutrients. It's about uh, addressing every single root cause, root cause. And in this case, the case of child malnourishment, we're talking about 10, 15, 30 common root causes that can wow. lead to that. What parts of the world have you traveled to? Give us some countries that you've been and what you've seen. Central Africa, mostly in Western African uh, countries. I've been to Central America and South American countries. I've been to Southeast Asia countries. And these are in the context of the programs where the global programs we're developing. This is where we, this is where we test and where we design. And I've seen varying degrees of poverty. Now, poverty is a different, it's just a difficult concept to wrap your brain around uh, because poverty is not just absence of rich and wealth, of richness and wealth. Poverty is a lot of different things. And, I, and I've seen poverty. I've seen abject poverty. I've seen people eating out of uh, garbage dumpsters. I've seen people literally uh, just being at death's doors because they were missing something in life. And that can be emotional, that can be physical, that can be a lot of different things. But uh, no place shocked me as much. And, and, and it might even be that it's not the worst. It's just that I happen to be at the worst time, at the worst place. But no place shocked me the more than... Uh, Sierra Leone is in the in the uh, central uh, western coast of Africa. It's been battered by every conceivable disaster you can imagine, man-made, nature-caused. The worst things that happen in this globe tend to happen in Sierra Leone. They recently had, uh, of course, they were at the epicenter of of the Ebola crisis. Uh, where thousands of people died, they get these rains that come through and sweep through and just just demolish mountainsides and bury whole communities. Three thousand people died in this landslide. It was horrible. They had a, one of the most brutal wars in the history of Africa in the last twenty years. 
And so cause after cause after cause, and this is why I, I, when I talk about the root causes of poverty, we need to be able to understand what are the events that have taken place that have led to this condition. I remember I came back from that trip and I'd walk through, I'd walk through an open air market. Uh, we, talk, we talk about open air markets here. We talk about context of COVID. We talk about the bats. Uh, I've seen markets like that and why people eat bats. I understand why people eat monkeys. I understand why people eat whatever protein they can get to because it's the choice between that or dying of hunger. It's like, you know, when, when someone's in a barge in the middle of the ocean and, and they're dying of thirst, uh, they end up dying of drinking salt water. Uh, and it's the exact same concept. And, and, and it's easy for us in our very comfortable abodes here in the United States to be judgmental. I remember coming home from that trip and uh, I can keep my emotions in check while I'm traveling, but coming here, getting here and processing through the experience and having had the experience to then sit down with my family and share some of the thoughts I had while I was there, I had a bit of an emotional collapse uh, and that, that was life changing. But those are also some of the most memorable experiences. Some of the most mem memorable exchanges and the most memorable people I get to meet are people in those countries. I am yet to meet, I'll, I'll say it differently. Um, I find that some of the people, some of the happiest people I've ever come across in my now almost 50 year existence are the poorest among us. They are truly happy. They don't know any better. They, they're poor, but they don't know they're poor. That's how I usually put it. That's how I wrote it in my journal. These, these people are poor and they have no idea they're poor. And they seem to live a full, happy, uh, fulfilled life in that setting. There was this lady, as I was going into that market I just described, and uh, she, uh, I saw her from the corner of my eye. Of course, you know, being the only white person in a, in a, in a 10,000 mile radius, and being six one in a, I was walking down this market and on the, off the corner of my eye, I see this woman, a very frail looking old woman, gray hair. Uh, and she was pointing at me and I, and I, you know, I learned that in, in those settings, you, you try not to call attention on yourself. So you, you, you just mind your business. You keep going to where you're going. And I was going to visit a, a fruit stand that one of the people we were working with trying to help them build a business uh, was not too far away. As I, was, as I was walking toward this fruit stand, this woman follows me. And now I can tell that she's following me. And I'm thinking, okay, I, she's going to ask me for something. You know, it's normal. And she pats me on the shoulder. I turn around and she smiles, a big smile, beautiful teeth. And then she points at her hair, my own hair. And then she, says, she smiles. And, and the message she was giving me is my hair is gray and so is yours. And then she, she opens her arms like this and asks me for a hug. Now, I'm Portuguese. Portuguese people love to hug. It's in our DNA. We hug people. I have never hugged anyone so frail, uh, so delicate in my life as that woman that day. And uh, that experience has stood out to me. And it, it is something I will carry with me to the grave that a woman in, the, in, in those conditions uh, would reach out to me and remind me that I have something in common with her. Uh, not just my human condition, but our hair. And that, that she would extend herself, a complete stranger that she had never seen that deeply touched me.
Now, are you able to, when you go to a lot of these places, are you able to eat the food and drink? Are there certain things that have to be done so you don't get sick? Yeah, we received some guidance about what we ought or ought not to eat. One of the concepts we speak of in, in humanitarian services is this concept of wash. It has to do with how we wash, W-A-S-H. It, and it's an acronym. It stands for water, uh, cleanliness in the kitchen, washing your hands. It's a number of different behaviors. And so we try to look for wash conditions in the field, even as we visit these areas. I couldn't, even if I tried, for example, in this open market I told you about, I, I couldn't try to eat the food there because... As brave as I am, and I am brave, I, I will eat a lot of different things. You know, um, if we visit a member's house or if we visit their business and their business's food, we'll eat what, they're, what they offer us and we'll watch them produce it. And not always with the greatest sanitary condition. Uh, we usually travel with copious amounts of antidiuretic. It's just a preventive. Oh. Uh, it's a preventive. We usually do not drink the water. We drink copious amounts of soda, whatever can be in a closed container. That's usually what we do. It's tragic when we go to a country and, and we live out of McDonald's, to me at least. I love to experience the culture. And to me, part of the cultural experience, because it's ingrained within my own Portuguese culture, part of the cultural experience is, is the food. And so for me to go to any one of these countries without having a taste of their local food, and I'm not talking about a five-star restaurant. I mean, getting out of the hotel, going to the back alleys, and within reasonable conditions, try to find someone that can actually feed you what they normally eat. And, and I really enjoy that. I really enjoy that. I find that enriching. It's a dimension of the experience that I, I cannot afford to, to set aside. One of my greatest regrets as a world traveler uh, is to have rejected an offer for scorpion in, in China. I was brought this platter of scorpions, uh, well-intended. Uh, and I just couldn't because I picked it up. And I, at the time I was arachnophobic. I'm no longer arachnophobic. I picked one up. I was going to eat it. And then I lifted it up and I saw that at the bottom, it looks just like a spider. Now. And so, but that's my, see, that's one of my biggest regrets. And now I wish I could take it back. I wish I could be back in China, uh, in that province. When people offer you food, more often than not, they're trying to offer you the best they have. A yeah. lot of times in detriment of their own families. And so it's part of that, human exchange, you know, it, it's a gift to you that uh, is precious and that should be seen as such and accepted as such. What kind of homes are you going to? Tell us about those. What are these homes like when you go there to visit or to ascertain what needs they um, have? It depends. It, it, even within a country like Sierra Leone or Ghana or Nigeria or the Philippines or, you know, whatever, you'll have everything ranging from a dirt floor hut to a cement floor apartment or to a an adobe settlement and so it really varies in more in more urban settings it tends to be cement and brick the things we do to help determine degree of poverty is the the living conditions and of course if if you're looking at where do they defecate do they defecate in in the common area do they defecate meters away from the abode? Do they go to the closest river? Do they actually have a hole? Do they have a latrine? Do they have a, a, a toilet? You know, so all those are things we look at to try to assess the living conditions of the people we visit. And so there's a wide range, a wide variety of conditions we, we get to meet. When you come home from these trips, what do you tell Angie? What do you tell your children? How do you 
I mean, do they understand how, I'm sure they do understand how blessed they are to live here. Uh, that's a conversation we have often about priorities because of what I said earlier in terms of being happy. I have seen true joy in the eyes of the poorest among us. That's never lost in me. And, and, and it doesn't mean that I, I never complain in life. You know, sometimes something, you know, something goes sideways and you just go, oh man, I wish that hadn't happened. But, but it's all a matter of perspective. And, and I'm so grateful that God has given me this opportunity to be out there and to see, to have something to, to contextualize my own human experience against and to say, okay, I don't know when all said and done. Uh, and if I stub my toe today, it could be worse. I could be a double amputee from the war in, uh, you name your country. And so it really helps us understand a little bit of, of the magnitude of the blessing of living in a country like America. And I think it actually comes a little bit as a blessing and a curse. A blessing because, you know, God has prospered us to, to unprecedented levels. We are, as a nation, we are more prosperous than, than anyone has ever been in the history of the universe, in the history of this, of most certainly of this globe. I don't know the universe. I don't know about other planets. <laughs> But we live, uh, our living conditions are comparable, if not surpassing of the conditions of kings and queens of a lot of countries, a lot of nations in the world. And so gives us a lot of blind sides. And with prosperity also comes pride. And with pride comes indifference. And with indifference comes the conditions we see every day when we travel. And that's the sad part of it. I believe America is at its greatest. In America, it, nothing compares to what America does. America, the country, and America, the people, to abate poverty worldwide. One of the greatest blessings to me is to be able to see, to have some insight into philanthropy, worldwide philanthropy, and to see the amount of good these people do these people, the institutions that they represent, the amount of good they do is phenomenal. But much more can be done. We have the know-how, the ingenuity. We understand how to create prosperity, and these people need to understand that. Not Western prosperity as we've defined it here, but prosperity to the extent that will help prolong, preserve and prolong human life. I don't hear when I visit these countries from people saying, I want to go to America. I want to have uh, a three-car garage, 4,500 square feet of, of prop, whatever it is, that's not what we hear. Again, because there's no, they, they have no comparison other than what they see on TV. But there's much we can do as a nation. There's much, certainly much we are doing as a nation to help alleviate the conditions that diminish life or diminish quality of living or quality of life. And to me, that is the gr greatness we could talk about quadrillion dollar economies, certainly. And we now live in an, in an economy that has truly no precedent, uh, in a prosperity that has truly no precedent. But that to me is not the indication of American greatness. Do you mm -hmm. think what you're speaking about, is it a matter of Americans not being thankful enough or not understanding what it's like outside America in many places in the world, or is it both? Well, I don't think, in the risk we run into, anytime we have a dialogue like this about America, America is, is an abstract construct. America is not just a place. Absolutely, it's the people that makes the country, right? Very diverse people. 
And it's a very diverse people. And so it's unfair to generalize, I think. So when we speak in broad strokes in terms of the American experience, I think it's fair to ask, what do we see generally speaking? And don't get me wrong, I actually do believe, and in that sense, I'm a bit of of an idealist. I believe that at its core, the American people is good and kind and generous. I believe that. And I don't, it's not just because of what I see in philanthropy in the world. It's because of my experience growing up. It's because of my education. It's because of the ability to have seen more than just the, within the walls of these beautiful Wasatch Mountains, I've been able to break through these walls and have other experiences that have led, led me to be an idealist. I firmly believe in the human condition. I firmly believe in humans and compassionate. I believe it's at our core. It's at the DNA of the American experience to be just that. And philanthropy is, is a trailing indicator of that condition to me. Do I, could we benefit as a people to look around us to perhaps uh, gain a little bit more empathy? I mean, we're, we're where we are politically, right? The contentious nature of political strife in this country has is, is, is gotten to, to unsustainable levels. Uh, and, and it's our fear that this can threaten the, the American experience. I don't see it as a terminal condition. I see it as going through cycles of pride and cycles of, of contention, internal contention. But we have to remember that this country has fought a civil war uh, between the North and the South. We have to remember the hundreds of thousands of people that died in that war. And we have to remember that as soon as that, that war was over, or shortly after that war was over, uh, we came together as a country. And, and we created this beautiful setting we live in. Sometimes you just have to go through traumatic experiences to remind you of who we are and, and what we stand for. You know, I come from a country that's, that's 2,000 years old. You know, it's relatively different. We're just babes, right? Yeah, right. You're still a teenager. And, and as a teenager, you're still going through some identity crises, asking yourselves, well, what do we stand for? Do we stand for violence in our streets? Do we stand for racial strife? Do we stand for... Uh, historical revisionism. Do we stand? What, what is it? What what makes us? What makes what we are? What do we want to be when we grow up? And some of that dialogue, some of that discourse, is healthy because it helps you have existential, in defining moments. But some of it is destructive. But I actually do believe, because I do believe in the goodness of the heart of America. I do believe that if we just pause, if we just consider what we have, we have uh, Russell M. Nelson going on microphone this week and telling us, you know what, let's change the tone a little bit. Let's just write a gratitude journal over the next seven days. And Luis, it it changed immediately overnight. For those who don't know, tell them who Russell M. Nelson is. Uh, Russell M. Nelson is the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The church hold him him to be a prophet of God. And uh, he went on social media, he went on television this week, and uh, he, he encouraged us. Uh, encourage the world, not just not just members of the Church of Jesus Christ, encourage the world to turn inward uh, and to pause this contentious rhetoric that has permeated our, the fabric of our American experience for the last few years, and to just ponder on the things we are grateful for. We need more moments like that. We need more Thanksgiving moments. And when we do, when we start considering how truly and, and richly and heavily blessed we are, we st- when we consider the blessed condition of our lives, we start considering 
the the condition of those that perhaps have fallen short of the American dream. And, uh, and it becomes part of us. Every one of us has the ability to be empathic. All of us. It's a human condition. It comes in my belief, in my religious belief, in my religious dogma, it comes from the light of Christ. We are naturally endowed with ability and the tendency to be good and to do good and to do well and to bless others. And, but sometimes we just have to pause and, and let that human uh, prevail over the contentious human. Native Americans talk about white wolf and the gray wolf. And whichever one you choose to feed is the one that will prevail in your life. And I love that imagery. I love the imagery of pausing and, and asking ourselves, what wolf have I been feeding most? And all of us are guilty of this. We have all been in contentious conversations in fa on Facebook or whatever social media. It's just the perfect place to have these contentious arguments, right? Nothing ever gets all solved. I don't know why we do it. And this righteous indignation within us prevents us from stopping and asking ourselves what wolf we're feeding. So do I believe the American experience is redeemable? Absolutely. But we need more Thanksgiving moments. And it would do as well to ask the person on the other side of the aisle where they're coming from. And, and when someone's screaming racism at the top of their lungs, what, what do you mean by that? Help me understand what you mean by that. Or when someone is saying all lives matter, what does black lives matter? And what has led in your experience for you to feel like you need to scream that at the top of your lungs, just as much as the person saying all lives matter screaming at the top of their lungs. Let's have a dialogue, let's just stop screaming. And when we do, we, we tend to be able to see and, and to feel things that we haven't seen and felt for so long and wounds are healed. And that's how I believe we redeem the American experience we're having right now. I don't know if I answered your question. We probably- No, that's it. good. I told you, Luis is so knowledgeable and I see all those books behind you and I'm curious, have you read a lot of American history? So I, I love history. Uh, I one my favorite subject in high school was history. In this case, Portuguese and European history. I had read in high school also some American history. It's part of of the uh, European saga of discovery, you know. And so, in that context, we read in college at Brigham Young University was American heritage. I absolutely loved it. I find the American experience to be fascinating. It's truly a political experiment. Truly a political experiment. And, and there's nothing like it that I am aware of. It was built on the shoulders of giants. Uh, and in this case, the, the French experience and the, and the English experience. But uh, it became a, a much better experience, political experience, than anything that preceded it in Europe. Tell me who some of your American heroes are. Oh, God. Well, George Washington. I mean, uh, there's really no competition there. He is tenacity is righteousness. He was a good dude. He was a good dude. He needed to be a good dude. America needed a good dude. <laughs> uh, otherwise, I, so for those of us that believe in, in God's hand in the formation of this country. Which Luis um, and I both do. So. Which we both do. It would have taken a very good dude to put this together. Uh, and George Washington was that. There was righteousness in his heart. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. I was about to say that. Was he? No and I, think, I think that's where we get tripped up a lot is that 
these people with sometimes with our 21st century minds, we try to get into the mind of an 18th century man. And I think that's impossible to do. And yet we still try to do it. And we try to, you know, why didn't they do it this way or why? And so I think that that's wrong. That's where we have a huge problem. I think when people try to do that. And not one of us in this human experience, given the right of insight into our lives, our decision-making processes, our background, not one of us will survive the scrutiny of a future generation, not one. We are all flawed individuals. Now, again, this may sound like I'm going back on this concept of humans being intrinsically good. I actually believe that. But intrinsically good doesn't mean perfect. Intrinsically good means that the prevailing force within us is a white wolf, not a gray wolf or a black wolf. And then that's what I believe. And, and yes, we all make mistakes and we are all going to say stupid things. Uh, we're all going to unimpress someone. One of the values of my life, one of the things I've tried to do since I was a little child is not make enemies. I actively pursue a strategy of not leaving an enemy, someone that doesn't like me or like what I stand for. I failed miserably. I can't. And so given sufficient insight into someone's life, there will always be someone in the future that will call you the biggest crook or the biggest liar or the biggest fraud or whatever. And so hindsight glasses are not always 2020. American history in the whole, the men that came together, Jefferson, Hamilton, Washington, all of them, that, that whole group of 200 men, the, the minds behind the Revolutionary War were not brought together by happenstance. And while living 18th century values, the greatest country ever created in the history of, of this planet. And today, whether we like it or not, we still reap the benefits of the brilliance of those minds. And as a political scientist, scientist myself, by, by academic formation, I still stand in awe at what they put together. That's why I call it an experiment. It was an experiment in political science. What they put together then and what is still in place today, you look at the checks and balances alone. That, that alone, if you study checks and balances in the science, the political science behind checks and balances, the concept of an electoral college, the concept of a, a, a Supreme Court not having a ceiling or a bottom, uh, the concept of judicial appointments, the concept of, I mean, you, it, it, you pick at any of it and you start peeling the layers of complexity and, and junk that goes on with, oh, we have to abolish this or, or change that or, you know, whatever. It, the brilliance behind those artifacts, those political artifacts is phenomenal, is mind-blowing how intricate of a system they created is, is truly phenomenal. I'm curious, how many languages do you speak? Portuguese is my first language. Most kids my generation and subsequent generations in Europe, in Portugal, not Europe, have two or three languages uh, beyond their, uh, well, they'll speak two or three languages. So their, their maternal language, their birth language, uh, they'll speak a second language because in the sixth grade, they'll take a second language. And then in high school, in ninth grade, you'll pick up a third language. So my first language is Portuguese. My second language is French. Uh, I'm not as practiced or as versed in French anymore because a lot of the, the linguistic uh, proficiency comes from immersion. And right now I'm immersed in English and have been immersed in English for the last 26 years. So it's, it's normal and 
uh, that English will be my prevailing second language. So French, second language, English, third language. I've since picked up Spanish because of, you know, professionally, I, I need Spanish. Does it become easier to pick up other languages? So English is a Germanic language. Uh, it's easy to pick up Romance languages. Uh, Romance meaning a, a, a language of, of Roman origin. So it's easy for a Portuguese speaker to pick up Spanish, some Italian. French is difficult, although it is a Romance language. French is very difficult because it uh, it's very complex. It has a very complex structure. So French actually took me eight years to learn. I'll speak French occasionally when I come across someone that speaks French to me. Languages are like riding a bike. You won't forget it, your, your pedal legs first. And so it would probably take me a couple of days to that level of whatever proficiency I, I stopped with. So I'm not that uncommon for most kids my generation. I do have the benefit of having traveled the world a lot. So I practice, I use my languages a lot. When I ask Luis, is he Portuguese? Is he Portuguese American? Who is Luis? I am a citizen of the world. Legally, I am a Portuguese citizen. I am an American citizen, naturalized American citizen, for which I am tremendously proud. Uh, but I aspire to be a citizen of the world. I believe that it's within every one of us to change the world in any way we can. And you're doing that, Tina, uh, with this podcast series. Uh, and it, sometimes it starts with a small footprint, and then it snowballs into something greater, much greater than what our initial vision was. And so I believe that. I, I firmly believe that. I believe that if we want to change the world around us, and I mean the world, not just this American experience, and that inclusive, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of and in the place of those that we're trying to change. We need to change it from a position of, of, of empathy, not from a position of force. And that's when we are at our best. That to me is the, the hallmark of America greatness, is what I see in philanthropy, is what I see in, in the many institutions and in the many individuals that have tried, my goodness, uh, the work they're doing to eradicate preventable diseases, uh, the work they're doing to, to eradicate disease-borne mosquitoes, to inoculate uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of children in this world. They are doing more to change the human condition than most people in, in the history of this planet. Well, they sure are getting a bad rap right now. It is what it is. You can never please Greeks and Trojans. You know, it, it harkens back to this idea of uh, I can try to live my life and not leave a trail of, of enemies, but it's, it's impossible. There will always be someone that doesn't like something you say. Uh, and I look at Bill and, and Bill has his own political aspirations and his own political vision. And, and sometimes he says things I don't agree with, but I can't help but look at the man without, without admiration. It, it, the work he's doing, the work Melinda is doing, is phenomenal. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I think you probably know a great deal more about that and what they are doing than the average American citizen. So I think that that's good to hear. It's comforting to hear that. My last question for you, and you may end this any way you want, is how do you feel about America? I'll answer in two parts. Um, America the place and America the people. This place is breathtaking. There are very few continental countries in the world that can encapsulate within its borders the full gamut of, of beauty that this country does from the, from the Rocky Mountains. And I love the snow. I absolutely love the snow. Now, being a creature of the beach, I miss the beach. Uh, and so, but the, the majesty of these mountains, the, the snow-capped peaks, the, the ruggedness of the terrain, 
and then you have the rolling prairies of the of the Midwest, uh, the endless cornfields. We went to Iowa and to Illinois recently, and we just drove these endless corn and soy fields. And it, to me, it's breathtaking. I absolutely love it. And it comes comes from my dad. My dad was an agricultural engineer, and so when we see these endless fields, it's just just so beautiful. And then you go to these beaches, and you go to Southern California, uh, even Oregon and Washington State, where we lived. Uh, for a little over a decade. Those are my favorite kind of beaches. I would rather go to a Washington beach than yeah. a California beach. I, I just, I love everything about it. I love the weather. I, it, I love it there. This country has, has, has a little bit of everything for everybody. I can imagine that when, uh, when, when the pilgrims uh, landed here, and we know that their circumstances weren't easy and that they actually struggled for the first few decades, uh, mightily struggled. At some point, they had to, to to come to the same conclusion I did, where they came across a ledge and they looked over, peered over a mountain, and just went, "This is God created. This is beautiful. This is divine." So there's that part. Uh, the people. Going back to the premise I explored earlier, I believe in the good heart of the American people. I believe that we are a teenager having an existential crisis. I firmly believe that. Well, how else can you put it, right? Well, and I also believe that at some point we're going to see ourselves through it. I think cooler heads will prevail. I certainly hope cooler heads will prevail as long as we have moments like what we're living right now, uh, Russell M. Nelson moments, where we're asked to pause. Uh, and when we ask questions like that, when we ask questions like, what do you have in common with the person on the other side of the aisle? There's just so much. One of the greatest blessings of my life is having lived in the Pacific Northwest. Not just because of the beauty of the Pacific Northwest, but because of the political leanings of the Pacific Northwest. And as a conservative myself, I identify myself as a conservative. It helped balance me. It helped humanize the other side of the dialogue. And I needed that. It was at a time of my life, I had just finished my MBA and I felt like I, I kind of knew my way around life and I had some very strong opinions about everything. Uh, and I needed a little humbling. And it was very humbling for me to really be exposed to the heart of the other side of the aisle and to understand the intention and to understand the logic and how I live my American experience. I've since learned, and don't get me wrong, I still say stupid things. I'll still write stupid things. And I'll still take off half of the world uh, with my stupid things. But... Uh, I believe that I, I am much better equipped today to come to a conversation from a position of empathy because of that experiences of the experiences I had in the Pacific Northwest. I'll agree with you on that, Luis, because I won't name this person, but it's someone that lives in Florida. I'm sure you know who I'm speaking and. And you two both come from very different sides, and yet you're you're both very cordial to one another and hearing each other out. And so I think that's good. It's it's how more of us need to be. And you know, I've met this person. I've uh, this person we're speaking of, who happens to be an African American woman with strong American experience, and I've met her uh, in person maybe half a dozen times. But we write each other a lot. And uh, I can tell you, I love her like a sister. And uh, because that's who we are. That's what we are. We're brothers and sisters. And not just in a gospel context, but in, in, in this human experience, in this, um, even in this American experience, we are all brothers and sisters, children of God. 
uh, I have a, a, a deep and tremendous love for this woman's experience and a deep and tremendous respect for her life experience. And I know for whatever little she knows of me, uh, and it's little, you know, it's based mostly on conversations with my wife, that she respects my, ex my experience and she respects my point of view. And, and we can celebrate that which we have in common when we do often. We do often. And what we have in common is this firm belief that we are children of God and that there is a, a divine potential in every one of us and that we can, uh, if we just let it, can, we can thrive together, we can prosper together, uh, and we can come to, to agreement when there seems to be no possible agreement. And, and I believe this woman has been put in my path uh, to remind me of that. Um, and I'm really grateful for her. Thank you. Pleasure. I, yeah, I, you're very wise. <laughs> and you, you are very eloquent with your words. I know that you're going to touch a lot of people. Tina, it's been a privilege, uh, honestly. And I am still sure that I will manage to have ticked off half of the world. <laughs> and that's okay. But uh, just know that the, the intent is, is good and that me, like most of you listening to this podcast, want the best possible for each other. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I have one word for today's episode. Beautiful. This episode could not have come out at a more perfect time. And Luisa's vision of the American experience is nothing short of inspirational. I hope you were able to gain as much listening from this episode as I was talking with Luis. I can't thank him enough for letting us hear his wisdom. If you want more American history, please join our Facebook group at American History, Our Heroic Journey. Next week, we'll hear Miguel's American story. See you then.